Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism and religion and science, philosophy, history, mathematics, whatever subject interests us at the moment. And tonight, I say let's bop Mormonism right on the nose. What I want to talk about is it's been several years ago since I wrote the Amazon review of Thomas Riskus' book, Deconstructing Mormonism. And I do believe I put a whole bunch of pages in here up front so that I could make my own index. American Atheist Press, 2011. Yeah, I wrote my review in 2012. And uh, what I want to do is I will share tonight one of the strongest of the strong points at the time that I was reading him that just kind of uh, took me back. I, I, I was just stunned that I had never seen it quite in this light. And, well, because as an, an apologist, what apologetics is going to be interested in when it comes to this uh, particular subject is the principle of an embodied God. God as anthropomorphic, uh, deified, glorified uh, human, right? And so that's, I mean, David Paulson, the, uh, the great BYU philosopher down there in the Y, uh, he wrote several articles on this divine embodiment of deity. And, uh, you know, they always talk about God the Father, but they skip over God the Mother, of course, because in Mormonism, for whatever silly reason, probably because the old white boys in Salt Lake think they imagine that they'll lose power if they honor the great mother in heaven, the great goddess, who is actually the one in all of the ancient traditions who gave birth to the universe. Uh, she is a very prominent figure in a lot of the ancient mythologies, and especially, beautifully and amazingly enough, in the Jewish Zohar. And that's going to be my discussion at Sunstone on the 28th, Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, I believe, either 10 or 10.30. If you want to listen in on, come and jump on Sunstone. Um, and I'll be discussing the Divine Feminine and the, the Zohar Jews. I mean, Judah is really showing Mormonism what the idea of presenting new scripture is. It's, it's phenomenal. Daniel Matt's Pritzker edition, 12 volumes. He just wrapped it up, I believe, in 2017, and they are absolutely spectacular. His critical apparatus in the Zohar is simply staggering. It is so fantastic. Very informative. Uh, but, you know, Mormonism worries about Jesus worrying about his holy name and all that. So quit giving Satan the victory by saying Mormonism. You know, all that peripheral, trivial, silly, ridiculous noise that they love to claim, this is a revelation of God Almighty. Their brethren Judah, the other tribe in Israel, see the the silly thing about Mormonism is they love to imagine that they're the only tribe of the uh, 12 tribes that exists. 
they fail to realize that they are secondary to Judah. But, you know, that, well, we have the priesthood. And, uh, so do the Jews. They just don't know it. Anyway, I'm on a diatribe now, aren't I? Well, that's okay. I'm going to be giving the, uh, the discussion in Sunstone. I hope you come to Sunstone and listen to us, too. It'll be a lot of fun. Tom Riskus uh, really did a number here. Now, in rereading through him just, well, within the last year, I've read him now about four times, and in rereading through him, I have discovered that what really struck me this time is his analysis of the psychology that Mormonism presents to us. This manipulative psychology, this, this kind of psychology that, that uh, well, like Neil A. Maxwell tried to manipulate us into the all we, everybody is declared as being meek, and it's meekness, and it's obedience, and oh, how he loves that word, submissiveness, and faithfulness, and obedience. Of course, he says it's to Jesus, but he ends with the forte of all of this meekness and be a disciple scholar, which means come to the conclusions only we approve of, a disciple scholar. I mean, black, right? Ooh, Godfrey. That's just, ooh, makes you cringe, doesn't it? But, uh, so what, what he is, this cheap psychology, what it's attempting to do is to intimidate you. It is to force you under them so that they can control. I, I mean, seriously, that's what it's all about to them. Very interesting. None of this, of course, would be possible. They wouldn't even care about it if they really did believe Jesus was actually running his church. None of this manipulation and, and psychologically psycho silliness would even be occurring if they actually really did know that Jesus is running the show and not them. But see, it has now become about the money. Look, $150 billion, $130 billion, uh, it, they don't give a fly and flip about the truth. That's not even in their interest anymore. They are a corporation. They call themselves that. And it's all about the money. That's why they've even, oh joy, given you a new church, holy Savior's calling of cleaning their own toilets for free on Saturday mornings. Obey the brethren. Happy, happy, happy. Follow the prophet. Follow the prophet. Follow the prophet. He'll lead the way. Yeah. Holy nightmare! Well, when you compare and contrast that childishness that they haven't put away yet, that Paul said we should, and compare this assessment that Tom Riskus gives us, uh, it is a dynamic contrast. So it's on page 93. 
and I think I will share several different uh, ideas of Riscus in many, many different podcasts as time goes on, and, and many videos of these videos, uh, where I discuss a specific item that Riscus brought up that is, to me, was so powerful. This particular one on page 93, uh, this one just absolutely flattens Mormonism's nose and lays it out on its back, and it, it doesn't even realize that. I, I'm, I'm going to be interested, and, and please do feel free to share your comments. I mean, feel free to donate to the podcast if you'd be so kind, and I can keep right on trucking with good, solid, informational, fun, interesting, humorous, hopefully, podcasts. But uh, share your comments, share your ideas. I'm looking forward to seeing how Mormons would react to this, because as an apologist, I know their emphasis doesn't think all the way through this particular point. Here it is. Enough browbeating, dude! Tell us! Here we go. So, the Mormon doctrine of eternal progression. And, of course, this relates to the uh, Mormon doctrine of deity. This teaching about eternal progression, while sounding very sophisticated in nature, always begins with the Heavenly Father on his planet, but ignores the most fundamental issues raised by the doctrine. The origins of man are completely ignored in the doctrine. Well, what's the implications of that? Well, let's take a look. At one time, there were only intelligences and matter in the Mormon universe. How did man and planets come into being when there was no God to create or organize them? How did Mormon gods come into being, and they came into being in order to produce spiritual children when there were no human beings to become gods. Ooh. Where did the religious revelation regarding obedience to Mormon doctrine come from when there was no God to give the revelation and no human being to receive it. The connection between the existence of the intelligences, the appearance of Mormon gods, and human beings is never made or explained as to how it could occur. This connection cannot be made, because Mormon theology begins with eternal man as the foundation, and God is a subservient position to man. Not only is God secondary in existence to man, since there must first be a man who can be exalted to Godhood, but God himself is only the end of human progression to that state of being. But there is an additional problem. Because for a man to be exalted to Godhood, there must 
first be an existing God to accomplish the process. What Mormon doctrine teaches is the eternal regress, a circular and closed process of eternal progression. But in that eternal closed system process, there is no allowance for the origin or the beginning of the process. There is no opening into which the eternal intelligences first enter the process, because there is no eternally existing physical man or God to be the first cause. <laughs> now, that's pretty deep. If you have to listen to that a couple of times, I would recommend you do so. But listen to how he carries on further here, because contrary to the first sentence here, in the second paragraph, a connection has been made between the existence of intelligences and the appearance of Mormon gods. So contrary to the last sentence of the last paragraph, a first cause has been postulated in Mormonism, given that only eternal intelligences are alleged to be independent and self-existent. See, God is not eternal as God. Spirits are not eternal as spirits. And man is not eternal as a mortal man. It follows that the alleged will to organize inherent in eternal intelligences, this could be regarded as Mormon apostle Orson Pratt suggested in 1851 as the great first cause. When we begin to look at the theological implications of this, however, and remember, Pratt under duress had to uh, renege. He had to say, well... <laughs> I didn't mean it anyway, even though under his breath he kept saying Brigham doesn't have a clue what he's doing. But Brigham Young, being the church leader, of course, and the loving church leader that loved to debate, simply squashed Orson Pratt and forced him to recant. Remember, all of the brethren think alike, and they're all unified, and they love one another, and there's peace flowing forever, and yada, yada, yada. So the Mormon Church officially proclaimed, proclaimed in 1865 this to be a false doctrine, this idea of Pratt's first cause. And, and it, yeah, it was pretty silly. Because this depersonalizes the Mormon God, and it makes him as God synonymous with intelligences, which are considered in virtue of their attributes as divine intelligences, as the great first cause, the eternal God and the creator and sustainer of all that is. So Pratt ended up saying it was the attributes of God with which have the power, not the body, not the person of God.
So this theological position logically makes the finite, tangible personage of God unnecessary as a creator and a heavenly father of spirits, and it also suggests that there was a time, contrary to Orthodox Mormon theology, when there was not a personal God as an exalted spirit personage housed in a tangible resurrected body of flesh and bones. Even without such a disavowal and official denouncement, the Mormon version of the great first cause as either a logical or a factual necessity is both question-begging and factually unintelligible, as are the related and foundational concepts of intelligences and spirits and gods that comprise the Mormon doctrine of deity as the centerpiece of Mormon theology. And now here is his dig at Blake Osler. Now this is on page 94 now. So to argue, as Mormon apologist Blake Osler does, in necessarily God is not analytically necessary, that the claim of the Mormon God's self-existence is somehow self-justified by some proclaimed principle of self-existence, which holds that a being is self-existent if that being never in fact fails to actually exist and is not now, has never been, and will never be dependent on anything else for its existence, this is to argue invalidly for the self-existence of a being whose claimed existence, no less self-existence, is neither self-evident, in other words, we virtually can't find any evidence whatsoever, and it's not self-evident to our minds, nor is it factually intelligible. It, it simply is nonsense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Osler's principle of self-existence is a cognitively meaningless question-begging tautology, but it sounds intellectually cool, doesn't it? <laughs> As if that makes something true, right? Well, it sounds smart. It must be true. No, it's not at all. It explains nothing and it justifies nothing. It's just words. Moreover, it would seem to allow too much. Here's the other side of the coin here now. Because such a principle of self-existence, that's what Osler is hinging his argument on, right? Because this principle of self-existence, incoherent as it is when it is applied to the concept of the Mormon, or, interestingly enough, to any other god, well, anyone can appeal of any faith. Anyone can appeal to this principle. And therefore... <laughs> they could justify the existence of their gods, too. <laughs> so, and I'm sure Osler doesn't want to have that conclusion. So. so this is exquisitely interesting, isn't it? One of my, as I've uh, analyzed this through the years, 
one of my ideas, one of my problems is we know. Now, and, and here again, there are a few diehards who love to still think the earth is flat, just as surely as there are still a few diehard chapel Mormons, even though the internet Mormons know better, but there's still a few diehard chapel Mormons who deny anything about evolution. But there are some very good Mormon scholars, Mormon biologists, and Mormons who are coming up through the ranks now who hopefully, even though they've got their work cut out for them, hopefully they will be able to teach the chapel Mormons better. Uh, because the church manuals dang sure ain't gonna get you into how to think through arguments. All they do is tell you what to think. They don't do anything about telling you how to learn how to think, assess evidence, critically weigh, evaluate pros and cons, etc. No, they just say, here's the doctrine, Joseph Smith, true prophet, memorize that. Book of Mormon, true, memorize that. Jesus is the Christ, memorize that. The living prophet is the head of the church while he's on earth, taking God and Jesus' place. Memorize that. There, there's your testimony. You know, it's palpably ludicrous. The real science, and I am going to use Jerry Coyne, Why Evolution is True, he describes on page 192 how every living thing on earth is genetically related. Plants, animals. Every living thing that has genes and DNA, we have ancestors all together. So we know that our human body, which incidentally is only uh, human, humankind, I mean, we're only like, what, 190,000 years old. And I, I mean, seriously, you can ask Siri on your telephone. Let's do that. Why not? This might be a fun experiment. How old is humankind? According to evolution, humans, origins of less than B greater than humankind less than B greater than. The modern form of Homo sapiens first appeared about 100,000 years ago. All right, about 100,000 years ago. Now that was modern Homo sapiens. She didn't go into some of the earlier ones. But, so, 100,000 years ago, but, see, everything that we know about our bodies, ourselves here, came from this earth. We have evolved on this earth. We're genetically related to all the life forms on this planet. So there was no embodied God way, uh, come to think of it. How old is the universe? There was no embodied God before our bodies evolved that looked just like us. How old is the universe? 14 billion years old. According to space.com, the universe is 14 billion years old, astronomers confirm. Okay, so 14 billion years old. And we like to imagine, well, God, you know, he's eternal. 
not with his body, because this body that Genesis says we're, we're that God created us in His image, this body evolved here, and we've only been modern for what what was a hundred thousand years, and the universe is fourteen billion years old. I had never quite thought about that before, but there's no way it just doesn't jive. And I did tell you about Stephen L. Peck, the Mormon biologist, Evolving Faith, excellent book. He does have some magnificent descriptions of evolution, you guys. He's one of the better ones. I think, I think now we're to the point, really seriously, where the, uh, the intellectual accomplishment of science, especially in the biology, but the intellectual accomplishment, the, the scientific evidences that affirm evolution are just absolutely amazing. Bill Nye, unmistakable. You've got to get that book. Granted, it's a popularizer book. I know Bill Nye, the science guy. Well, he doesn't know spit. Don't prejudge the book before you get it and read it. So we know evolutionarily, really, reality, all of the evidence and all of our background knowledge gives us the probability for real that our human bodies have only been around for, well, humankind human bodies have been around for a hundred thousand years. And then there's the Neanderthals and so on and so forth. But boy, wouldn't it be blasphemous to paint God the Father and Jesus Christ in the first vision as a Neanderthal and a Cro-Magnon, right? But they would have to have evolved, and then how could they become God? How, what other God before? And it, it is a mess. Tom Riskus brought that out. Tom Riskus at least brought it to the forefront in my mind, and now that's another issue with which I have to work at and try to figure out. On the other hand, I can say, there's just no way. Joseph Smith obviously bit off more than he could chew in inventing, presenting, reinterpreting. I shouldn't say invent. Well, I mean, that's what reinterpretation is, is inventing your own doctrine uh, by taking, cherry-picking bits and pieces of the Bible. It didn't matter whether it was in Hebrew or the Greek. At least Joseph Smith studied in the Hebrew and Greek. That's a lot better than the dinglings do in Salt Lake City now. All they do is read the English translations. And then at that, one of the silly ones, the King James. Even though it is poetically beautiful, there are much better translations to work with. Technically, you ought to get to the original Hebrew. But they won't. They're lazy learners, see. Oh, and oh, how they love to try to imitate that. You're the one who's lazy learner. You're the one who commits the sin. You're the one who has the problem. You're the one who is spiritually defective. You're the one studying those satanic doctrines. And you're being deceived through science and evolution. Cheap, amateur, Mormon pop psychology. Once you begin to come to that point, you can relax and have a little bit of fun with it, like uh, RFM and Bill Real and myself are doing. So, 
Anyway, that's that's enough for now just to show you. Now, that's just one idea of many, many dozens. Uh, I really like how Riscus describes how Mormons are trained on what to say again. Not how to think through issues, but trained on what to think and what to say when they do come across information that Sunday school, sacrament meeting, priesthood meeting, and certainly not general conference will ever teach them about. And so they acquire this cognitive dissonance and it drives them batty. They lose sleep, they start, they start freaking out and all that jazz. It's really, really interesting to see how Riscus deals with that approach from Mormons when they try to overcome the objections with their, unfortunately, ignorant chapel Mormon learning. They're all lazy learners, yet they think the Holy Ghost is teaching them into the eons of eternal knowledge, and I am great and powerful, and I know the truth. And sadly, they are brainwashed. They are being deceived because they're told what to think, not how to. We, us, we, us over here, hey, hey, we are going to help you learn how to think more critically, more fairly, more justly, yeah, because it is more just if you try to acquire the actual realistic probability because you are honestly acquiring the evidence from every single perspective that you are aware of. Not just pick, oh, oh, that doesn't confirm my belief, throw that away. Oh, well, that one, no, that doesn't work. No, no, hey, look at that! That one, that supports what I already believe. I will use that evidence only. That just leads you to a closed-minded testimony born by the Holy Ghost, which is completely phony, because the Holy Ghost, if it is the spirit of all truth, and it is actually a part of the Godhead, knows what is true and what is false, and it is not going to testify to what is false, and yet you have millions of people out there screaming around, running around in their skivvies, imagining that they're the only ones who have the real truth. And all they're doing is grabbing evidence that confirms their already existing beliefs. They have confirmation bias. And then they have the audacity to tell you you're the one apostatizing. <laughs> I'm not apostatizing. I'm not apostatizing. I just refuse to be stupided down anymore, dumbed down anymore. And I apologize if that's offensive to my Mormon friends, but you got to face the facts. You have been dumbed down. The, the crazy thing is when you're on the inside, you can't see it. That is what is so bananas about all of this. You really can't see how dumbed down you've been. That's why they have to constantly keep repeating the same thing over and over and over and over about what to believe. They don't teach you how to assess evidence. And then they try to make you say, believe that that method is secondary. It's inferior. 
inferior. It's lesser than the pure sure testimony. It's all just cheap pop psychology, man. It's amazing when you really see that. And, and I will talk a lot more about this. Riskus is pretty good on that score. He really is. So stay tuned for more. In the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, work hard, sleep nice, uh, smile a lot, make friends, be happy, be kind to one another, and uh, time to take the blinders off. It's painful. I can testify to that. But it's time. And so we're going to gently begin to do that in all of our uh, podcasts, videos, radio interviews, uh, interviews with scientists, philosophers, Mormons, former Mormons, whatever. We're all going to be doing uh, more and more interviews, live sessions, etc., etc. We've got a lot, of, uh, a lot on the agenda, a lot on the table, and we're going to lay it all out for all of you wonderful people, our audience, whom we dearly love and appreciate. So, that's enough blabbing, man. Time to shut up, Carrie. <laughs> this is your backyard professor signing off, finally, but I will see you in the next backyard professor video and podcast.